Welcome to another episode of Nick Flanagan Weekly. This is the Nick Flanagan Weekly podcast uh, by Nick Flanagan, your uh, starometer on IMDb, a rising little boy. What? That's what I am, okay? My starometer is going up. I'm a little boy. Things are on the up and up. I have something called momentum. Here's January. January is called prep January. We're done with that. The prep's over. Not sober January. I did not be sober this past January. February has two titles. Jacked Feb, because we're going to get jacked this Feb. Cassie Cow, my former guest, called January Get Hot January. It didn't really work for me. I was cold, and I didn't exercise enough, although I did lose three pounds. February, jacked. But also, no fucks. No fucks, Feb. No fucks, Feb. That's what I'm saying. Not afraid to swear. No fucks, Feb. Anyway, I am Nick, the host, and we have a guest today. Today's guest is just a wonderful, wonderful person. Wow. Wasn't expecting to say that, but honestly, strong on Twitter. Good at booking comedy shows. Uh, You'll hear us talk about all the different things that uh, she gets up to, but... Luisa Diaz is, uh, among other things, an anthropologist and uh, um, comedy booker (laughs) and podcaster. And she's on Twitter as Luisa Diaz Nuts. She's also on Instagram under that name. You can hear her Why You Mad podcast with co-host Jake Flores. Anywhere that podcasts can be heard. And we get together here on one of my first Skype interviews And we just had a really cool talk and uh, went all kinds of places. She's she's like me in that uh, I think she's just open for a conversation to go wherever. And we actually kept it pretty focused on comedy stuff. And we got into uh, people feeling out of people being out of touch, comedy heroes being out of touch and uh, a lot of other things. I mean, a lot more. And uh, yeah, so without any further ado. Here is my interview, my chat, my conversation with Louise, Louisa Diaz. But again, you have my absolute word. I'm not going to, if I ever post this as video, I'll animate you and I'll animate. (laughs) No, I'm not too worried about it, but yeah, definitely not (laughs) dressed up to be on camera. (laughs) Neither am I. Yeah, uh, you know, and I have like. Where are you? Are you in New York or in LA? Oh, I'm in Toronto. In Toronto. I'm in Toronto, Louisa. Is that I, where you live? That's where I'm from. Oh, and okay. my visa expired in 2018, so oh, I came shit. back here to the folds of Canada. Oh, okay. It's a shame, but also. Do you not like? Uh, I love it in in LA, LA and New York. Uh, I love it, but. Um, no, I meant, do you not like it in Toronto? I've heard it's great. It is great. You know, it's just that I'm born and raised, you know, here. So so it uh, is not always um, easy to stay in a place like that. In fact, oh, I, I understand. Would, yeah. Yeah. Where are you from? Um, I was born in Miami and then I moved around a lot all over mm-hmm. the world and then came back to Miami at around like 11 or 12. So I would say to you, like, I'm from everywhere. That's cool. <laughs> but my family's Colombian. Okay. And um, I went to back to Miami and did like the 
last half of elementary school through college in Miami. So I guess that's like the hometown. But I really yeah. don't feel like I belong anywhere but New York. Right. Yeah. New York uh, is awesome. Now, is this your attitude that makes you feel like you belong in New York? Take no guff. Um, a little bit. Yeah. Um, maybe it was because of Florida um, being or Miami specifically being like a very shiny, um, pretty city where the emphasis was on like being polite and being beautiful and having nice things and whatnot that I think I always felt like I was like a grumpy curmudgeon everywhere I went. And then when I came to New York just to visit, it was like, oh, I'm not. I belong yeah. here with the other curmudgeons <laughs> who are also like you're walking too slow and the service is taking too long. <laughs> like, yes, this is my land. <laughs> I remember the first time I went to New York, it was 2002. And I went with my uh, uncle and my mom and my sister. And I have the, had this friend and he lived in Brooklyn. Actually, I had a, he was a mutual friend. I didn't even know him at the time. And uh, I went with him to Brooklyn. I took the train for the first time in my life. We were all staying in, at Hotel Pennsylvania, you know, Midtown. Yeah. And, and uh, I was like, ooh, I'm on the New York subway system. This is huge. And then mm -hmm. went to Williamsburg in like 2002. And I was like, and then the guy I met up with looked exactly like me. And I was like, oh, so New York is where all the people who look like me are. All of yeah. the sort of people who are either know they're Jewish or haven't realized yet they have Jewish blood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, to me, it was just um, the vibe of so many people who don't belong anywhere else mm -hmm. feel like they belong in New York. And then, like, native New Yorkers, they seem kind of, like, not really bothered by having all these other people around i feel like like they're right. like it, they accept it as part of the identity of their city so you know it can be segregated in some in some ways but you'd have to interact with so many different kinds of people who came from different places that yeah. you don't feel like an outcast i would say although i guess some people do but i think if you don't like automatically really like dig the vibe of new york you probably just don't belong here <laughs> i mean i just think it's the financial aspect that's, yeah yeah you know, a little bit like hyped you know like everyone mm -hmm. thinks that before they go but also it's very true <laughs> oh no it's very expensive no yeah. and there's definitely a difference between like i like it here but i can't afford it and that's why i had to leave mm -hmm. then like people who like really don't like it and still insist on living here that's what i think is weird like which is an la thing too yeah you know it's huge in la yeah and, it's for your white, <laughs> white lady comedians post if you don't like la you know, uh, get out and then black lady comedians who don't like L.A. are yeah. like, are you talking to me? Yeah. <laughs> I don't see anyone else in the room. Exactly. <laughs> no, and it gets bad because of the gentrification thing of um, whose city is it then now? Um, I sure. don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It's tough. Do you mean New York or, or L.A. or both, really? Both. Um, both. Yeah, Toronto is like this, too. Cities. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting in Canada is our... Our history of immigration is just a lot less, uh, I don't know, vol volatile. There's really yeah. bad things that have happened, but they've been sort of like straight up erasure and oppression that has mm -hmm. not had anything happen. Or, you know, the stuff with Native people, which is just like right. a, an unbelievable stain. Of course, in the U.S. it is too, but it's not even a problem it seems like people are just like yeah we had a war and no yeah. oh god that's funny that it seems like it's like we don't have a problem it's more because actually so having come from museums you know uh -huh. i know that I, you, uh, yeah you know me from comedy but i came from museums and like before that from anthropology really mm -hmm. 
And so uh, it's actually really funny that to me, from my training, I admire a lot of like Canadian institutions mm-hmm. because they already operate in a way where their staffs and their institutional policies are about uh, recognizing Native voices, uh, mm-hmm. trying to make reparations of one way or another in the way that they like culturally represent certain groups and yeah. the way they include their voices and um, not just in in the form of representation, but also of participation, right? Of like bringing them into working in museums and that kind of stuff. Oh, absolutely. Which, which is all, all comes from the fact that you guys acknowledged <laughs> like what has happened as oh, opposed yeah. to in America where... Uh, like the most you hear is like people make jokes about like Columbus Day, right? And whatever, but there is no serious interrogation of the way that America's history is based entirely on like uh, the obliteration of these people. Yeah. Um, and anybody who brings it up is kind of like a Debbie Downer or unpatriotic. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it doesn't even really fold into the sort of world of in- intersectionality that, that right. we see, you know? I mean... I did watch a video recently that had that uh, of that lady who everyone says pooed her pants from Liberty Hangout. Uh, the curly haired girl. Yeah. Uh, girl. The gun girl. Yeah. Right. You know, it sucks to even talk about people, but at the same time, she was interviewing these college students and they were just really running circles around her. And one of them did bring up that the college, I think it was Rutgers or something that was on native land that was. So I think you'll always have elements of that. And yeah, it's definitely it, coming up with the younger people. Um, mm-hmm. They are more uh, aware and bringing up these things in conversation. It is unfortunate to me that in a lot of the um, rising conversations in the city the native voices are still the least heard usually um so i do think that it's coming but it's just really far from a a thing i think (laughs) yeah and in canada you know we do have these efforts uh that are sometimes really not necessarily popular with the population here right because there's a situation where, you know, a lot of the um, media voices, they're coming from Toronto, they're coming from Ottawa, they're coming from cities that have, like, uh, denseness as well as a lot of universities and, and stuff mm-hmm. and, and, and where people, academics, might congregate. So that's happening. But meanwhile, in, like, Thunder Bay, Ontario, in these other places where there actually is a lot of interaction between the natives in the in the pop, indigenous people, First Nations in the population. I mean, I want to say all the names, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, uh, with with whatever the other people, you know, like um, that's because well, in Canada, you guys tend to call them First Nations people. Mm-hmm. But in the U.S., you're lucky if somebody calls them indigenous, which would yeah. be appropriate, I guess. But there's like much worse terminology. But I guess, you know, First Nation works. But also they use. Indian in Canada as well. Like, sure. like yeah. and, and I think that, you know, people, um, I don't know, you, you know, I feel like letting, feeling out what we should refer to people as is really something we should be a bit nuanced, like I'll yeah. just give that Larry David stare and be like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it also, I think um, it bears remembering that labels aren't permanent and they evolve and they change with time and with like social expectations and mores. Mm-hmm. And really what's happening now is a lot of people wanting to choose their own label. And I don't think that 
giving people the power to give them their own lab- themselves their own labels means that they're going to pick one and it's going to be the right one forever and they're always going to go with that. So instead, we should just train our brains to understand that terminologies are going to change and the way people see themselves and others are going to change. Things are fluid. Yeah. And um, a lot of people's frustration against these things and things like pronouns, like gender pronouns and stuff like that, um, is really a resistance in your brain because you want to believe that language and society is finite and that once you learn this thing, it's learned and you're not going to have to learn it again. (laughs) But that is not how humanity works. We're a constantly evolving, changing thing. Okay. This is all awesome, but I feel like I should finally get a CV going for it, <laughs> like actually introduce. I mean, obviously, I'm going to record an introduction, yeah. but, um, you know, I, because I think that one of the reasons I, I found you so interesting mostly is is because, first of all, you were so nice. You put me on the sticker treat shows a couple <laughs> of years in L.A. I had a great time. You were very you were very uh, what's the word? Um, uh, it, it's like um, attentive to attentive, but there were like 70 people on on (laughs) shows and you were still fairly attentive, which I thought was really nice. And, uh, and then, you know, we followed each other on, on, on Twitter. And I was just was like, wow, like this is not the usual comedy booker kind of line of thinking, (laughs) which is a lot of time just straight up enthusiasm, which is great, Mm -hmm. you know, but, but, and you have that, like you definitely Mm -hmm. love comedy. And uh, as far as I know, or you did until the last few years. (laughs) (laughs) I have been complaining in the last few weeks. It's true. Well, whatever. I mean, comedy is, is transmogrifying. Uh, It's in a, it's, it's fluid too, I guess, you know, (laughs) and, uh, yeah, so a lot of your thoughts were just uh, coming from this academic place that, you know, I was in punk bands for a really long time and just, you know, really aware of all this stuff. So, I mean, uh, I, as you can see, I can go minutes upon minutes upon minutes without being funny. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, minutes only, though, not hours. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I could probably go hours without being funny. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, um, but but yeah, uh, so so just seeing all that really interested me, and then seeing again someone who was, I just kind of saw it when you were like, most of the people following you were like other comedian, like comedians, other bookers, people in the industry, and then it grew and grew. I think mm-hmm. I don't know how many followers you have now, but I would imagine you have a lot of people uh, responding to. I see a lot of people responding. To, yeah, you know, so uh, it was just great to see, and also it was all kind of thought provoking, and it, uh, honestly, I'm not trying to go. Uh, too too deep into like flattery here, but mm-hmm. I don't like most of what I see on Twitter. It makes me very anxious. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of the time opinions I agree with, I am really irritated by when they're put down in social media form. And and you were like somebody who I noticed and said, okay, this is like this is a good thing for on Twitter for me at least. Like mm-hmm. I am enjoying. Well, I appreciate that. Discourse. Yeah, I appreciate that. And it's uh, funny that you say that because I have had um, comedians. It's so weird that sometimes I'll like tweet something and a comic who like I never see on Twitter, they barely ever tweet, will text message me (laughs) or email me and be like, hey, I just read all of your tweets and they like didn't like them, you know, like they didn't engage with them on Twitter because they are not a Twitter person. Yeah. But they read them and then they'll like email me (laughs) and or like text message me and be like, here's what I think about this thing. And I'm so glad that you said something. And that's have you ever thought about it? You know, it's not always to agree with me. Sometimes it's to 
pitch a different way of thinking about things. And so I do have these great conversations uh, with comics and with industry, both on Twitter and off of Twitter, because I talk about, I think, the way that we, a lot of us are frustrated with the way comedy works, um, the way that comedy shows are run, the way that fans sometimes behave, the way that comics treat each other sometimes, um, the way that we have to exist under capitalism while trying to make art. and to me, it seems like it's worth having, like, I really do understand why a lot of, let's say, industry and comics don't have more conversations like this publicly, because it can affect their career, right? If you yeah. say something about how you don't like how um, things work at a certain club or for getting booked at a certain show or festival, then you are running the risk of being blacklisted by that institution or not ever, you know, getting in later or, you know, even... Even being blacklisted in the sense of other comics might get the sense of you are somebody who shouldn't be around because you they will reflect badly on you kind of thing. Yeah. Um, all because you are, I guess, like starting trouble by having these like very frank opinions said publicly. Um, but which is comedy is not about that. exactly exactly uh sometimes it's weird that people get very seriously mad if you treat comedy seriously (laughs) you know i mean frank honesty authenticity in comedy who wants that right exactly uh to me the thing that's most been um tossing and turning in my head is uh irreverence and this idea of how um underlying most comedy is the sense of irreverence whether it's towards another or towards the self or it's towards society mm-hmm. and yet um i'm seeing a lot of comedians bristling in the last year at irreverence being directed towards comedy or comedians um they're really revealing a lot of them this inability to be the butt of the joke or to um interrogate and joke about their own institutions Mm -hmm. um which is both interesting and also kind of a little bit alarming (laughs) yeah yeah and and but you know in a way uh that is uh where all of the creative industries kind of like uh, merge i know that comedy is based in irreverence but i actually think a lot of art has uh my favorite art has uh irreverence You know, Um, one of the things I try to tell people who hate Leonard Cohen is just like, actually, especially he's kind of funny, you know, like he's he's miserable, but he's funny. It's not like super serious, you know. Um, Absolutely. But then consider that, like, uh, for me, I like I like painters and sculptors and I like jazz. Right. And I would say in all of these areas, some of the greatest in these fields are people who showed, like, turned the irreverence on the canon. You know, they yeah. were very specifically critical or disruptive or dismissive of the industry that came before them, mm. the their peers. And I am sensing a lack of that in comedy now. And kind of like uh, this whole cancel culture thing is uh, suddenly this defensive response to the feedback of the world instead of uh, embracing what should be your strongest tool, which is irreverence and criticism mm-hmm. and embracing that and turning it on yourselves and on your industry. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, my, my school of enjoyment with comedy is just, uh, and, and what I do is 
you know, really comes from having been a comedian or sorry, a musician, but mm-hmm. like a, le- a lead singer musician mm-hmm. uh, from like age 13, 14 was when I started doing that. And uh, the lyrics were always uh, irreverent, mm-hmm. uh, self-flagellating off uh, after they got out of absurd. It got into self-flagellation pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then. And and ridiculous. And, and that was so fun for me. And I also did that in the live performance. And um, then when I was like 20 or 21, I just it's very pathetic. But me and a musician friend of mine who were, we were all working in a music distribution warehouse, we would like look at the newspaper comedy listings and we'd be like, who are any of these people? What is this? How is comedy just nobody we've heard of? Yeah. <laughs> and so. Because of that, I, I went to like an open mic and I did like ridiculous style. You know, my influences at that time, especially was like Greg Turkington, Neil Hamburger was just like someone mm-hmm. of that world, you know, who was touring with bands and uh, had had put out these sort of artful LPs, you know, you know, and, and mm-hmm. was doing a creative output and also obviously turning the lens on comedy itself, you know, mm-hmm. and, and and so that was my approach from the beginning. And I actually had to like unlearn a little bit. There was this mm-hmm. funny tour I went on with Hannibal Burris. It was a, a F yeah tour, the fuck yeah tour years and years ago. Mm-hmm. And I was doing, I was probably 28 and I had been doing this sort of like arch ironic. I'm coming from a good place. Don't worry. A reverend, very reverend, mm-hmm. but at the same time, intentionally with very ridiculous subjects, which I understand everyone has been doing forever. But Mm -hmm. in the early 2000s, it was really just like, I loved Sarah Silverman and, you know, and a lot of, and Neil Hamburger. So, and it wasn't happening quite as much, you know, it was like Mm -hmm. 2000. And uh, yeah, I had, I got beat up on that tour. I was like playing every night. We were playing to like tons of kids and they were like, we don't want this. (laughs) (laughs) And it was not an easy show to do well on. You know, Fate, Josh Fatem was also on that tour, who's so funny. And uh, we, Hannibal was the only one who was doing well consistently because he was in such a pocket. It was right after he got like the funniest person in Chicago award mm-hmm. and right before he moved to New York. And that was like one of my favorite sort of 20 minute sets he had. Sure. Anyway, I have ADHD and go on tangents sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it happens but, to us all. I forget what I'm talking about all yeah. the time. But I, I guess uh, what, what I brought that around to was, you know, that it was a reverence. And then I did listen to criticism, but it took me a long, long time to kind of turn that boat down a path that I fully liked. And I'm still not even quite there. Yeah, but even then, you know, everything you're describing is... Um an experience of growth, right? Of like, as you're finding your voice and you're figuring out what parts you're supposed to listen to and what parts you're supposed to go with your gut and disregard what is being said by this room. Mm-hmm. Um, that all makes sense. Like that is all part of figuring out how to be a stand up, how to write a joke. Um, but what I'm talking about is happening with the older comics like comics who have been doing comedy for 10 years or more and who by all accounts should should be used to having 
all kinds of feedback because they've worked the road and they've worked all kinds of rooms and they've bombed in all kinds of rooms and they've gotten negative feedback, you know? And then now instead, I think maybe possibly just because it's a, on digital platforms, you know, and maybe mm -hmm. they're getting a higher volume of negative feedback all at once. Um, I also think there's like a problem with um, both comics and audiences failing to understand the context of where they say things you yeah. know um what you say in the four walls of a comedy club is not the same as what you can say when it can be retweeted to millions of people who have no idea who you are and what your humor is like and what your yeah. intentions may be but that's complicated for anyone sure so, of course i mean i don't fully understand that you know absolutely but what i'm yeah. saying these guys like if anybody's been working on figuring out how to work different rooms it should, <laughs> you know, and and Twitter and the internet, there is it is just a different room with a different set of rules and audiences and consequences to your words. Um, but it's like a it's like a mansion with millions of rooms. <laughs> sure, yeah. Trying to limit all of those rooms, like you, like if anything, yeah. it's more like a it's more like a new version of of the TV audience, you yeah. know. Where it's Absolutely. like, there's only so many channels, and I wish Deborah Messing wasn't one of them, but, yeah. but she is. And I wish, you know, and, and I mean, what's amazing is seeing people lose goodwill with their demographics because of their Twitter. And I am talking about Michael Ian Black yeah. when I say this, you know, and just anyone who comes from like a more older political time. When to be sort of a nice centrist ish person who is, uh, was, but who hated, Bush or a war yeah. or something mm -hmm. was enough, you know, and, and yeah. now they're still vocal about it, but like all the people who like them disagree with them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just more transparency, I think, and it has its ups and it has its downs. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know, and I wouldn't say it's just comics who are um, being disavowed by their, by their fan bases. There's no. also actors and musicians who 100%. just come out with terrible opinions and uh, you really do wish sometimes you're like, God, I wish you were not on Twitter and you had not said that. <laughs> or good opinions and they lose people who disagree with those who opinions. disagree with those. Yeah, you're right. This has been happening in my mind since uh, Janine Garofalo and uh, in, in the first Gulf War, you know, sure. or the second, yeah. second Iraq War. That was when I, I actually, that's when I started tracking and paying attention to like the rise of right-wing blogs and uh, boycotthollywood.com was the first thing I ever checked out. And it was like this weird attempt to, you know, uh, put all these people that had apparently criticized Bush or whatever. And that then led to like a, a list of people who have now inspired uh, where, where we're at now, you know, whether it's Michelle Malkin or uh, the Pamela Geller who uh, did lots of, has done lots of horrible things and, uh, I don't even know. It's a that's a that's a whole other conversation. But I mm -hmm. I do think yeah that that a lot of the roots of outrage culture have something to do with um, that that era. And it, again, it's something I saw in the punk world. Um, and it's it's I was talking to my friend yesterday about seeing that become sort of a generational an entire generation sort of logic point you know and that the conversation has to be well i don't like that antifa are like the same as nazis and it's like mm -hmm. but, but they're not the same I they're know. based based out of this european thing that was like literally about fighting nazis which yeah. uh, you know that was actually like in a in countries where fascism was even more uh, you know stopping yeah. yeah 
So, so um, again, that's the anthropological side and in, in, uh, what interested you. But so, okay, now we'll get to mm-hmm. your resume. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, go. <laughs> so you worked in museums. Mm-hmm. I heard you worked at the 9-11 Museum. Where did I hear that? I heard it on the Why You Mad podcast. Oh. You host with Jake Flores. Yes, correct. Um, controversial Texas to New York uh <laughs> Comedian Jake Flores. <laughs> uh, go on, come down, Jake Flores. That's what he uh, has. Like he has, and that's probably where some of his controversy comes from. But um, yeah, I worked at the ninety eleven. Canceled? No, okay. I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, were they? I don't know that they are even cancelable or uncancelable. They are. They they're writing their niche quite well, I guess. Yeah. I don't think anybody who listens to them is going to get mad at the things they're saying. Um, will people who don't listen to them get mad if they find out about the things they're saying? <laughs> that remains to be seen. We shall see. We shall see. Uh, <laughs> so the 9-11 Yeah, museum. yeah. The 9-11 Museum, I worked there. I was part of the foundational staff, so I created the um, memorial, the, the name organization on the pools, and the uh, memorial exhibition within the museum, wow. which was the one about every person who perished in uh, both the 93 and the 2001 attacks. And um, it was, you know, quite an experience. It's very interesting to be a first-generation American and have my name on a building that is a national memorial to, like, a great tragic historical event. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's humbling, and it was an amazing experience, but it was also extremely not good. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I've seen that memorial, everything. and uh, it is just... Uh, just stops you dead in your tracks, and, you know, it's... Yeah. It's uh, no matter what people's politics are, I think you go they like the what that the ardor of the memorial, the, the what it sort of conveys is quite uh, striking. That's yeah. all. You know? Yeah. And it is um, something that maybe prepared me for having to parse out the complications and the lack of clarity in good versus bad and comedy and in jokes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, because the 9-11 event itself and, like, all the people that were affected by it, uh, there's a lot of viewpoints, and a lot of people have different personal ways that they take it and personal experiences through which they view the event and the way that it was talked about and documented and represented. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there are just the people who were actually there and who were actually, like, one degree away from affected and, like, lost family members and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... Uh, one part of me had to deal with knowing people and people's names and their relationships and who having who they lost, you know, the last time they spoke to their father or the last phone call somebody made from an airplane or, yeah. you know, just these pretty um, harrowing stories on one side of just people. And then on the other side, seeing the national rhetoric and the ways that we spoke about an event and mm-hmm. the ways that it was weaponized to uh, push certain policies and how like people's like victims, actual names and photos and faces were used to convince people of a certain political action which harmed others for many years. Probably one could say one could argue still to this day. I, so, yeah. yeah. So, um, 
while comedy stresses me out a lot, <laughs> very, very often. Nine eleven um, stresses yes. you out more. Yeah, no, well, it's less, it's less stressful than um, having to parse out, yeah, all the complicated emotions and experiences that people bring to something like 9-11. So, you know, I can deal with it over jokes and cancel, canceling comics over jokes. <laughs> Yo, thank you for listening to this talk with Louisa Diaz. I hope you are loving it. And if you want to love this podcast or you already do and you say, how can I express this love in a different way that's more tangible for Nick that he can feel in between his fingers? Well, then... I would say that you can go to patreon.com slash Nick Flanagan or ko-fi.com slash Nick Flanagan. That's ko-fi.com, coffee.com, Nick Flanagan slash Nick Flanagan. I like that website a lot. There are no fees. You can make a one-time donation, purchase, whatever you want to call it. And you can even do monthly recurring donations and there's no fees. So that's awesome. If you want to do the Patreon, that's awesome too. We have content that only donors and subscribers can get for both of those um it's gonna be the same stuff on either and uh i really appreciate it i will use that money to pay some of the bills this podcast get i will use that money to put more time into this podcast and uh other things like my comedy and my um birding which i have yet to begin doing but why not why not bird Okay, well, I'm not going to be long. I'm just going to tell you that it is very appreciated if you do that. And I'm, I think I'm going to start putting my Spotify playlists on it and a couple of other fun things. Uh, so I'd really just love your feedback. If there's things you do want on the Patreon that would make it super exciting to get, I want to make you happy. We have merch I keep talking about. Just trying to figure out how to do it. But yeah. A dollar, ten dollars, a hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, it all helps, especially a thousand dollars, but it's also a dollar. So now back to the interview. Luisa Diaz. Thanks for listening. Right. Yeah, that's and and so that was uh, when I was listening to the episode, I think it's one of your most recent episodes you talked about the Kevin Hart oh, sure. Netflix thing. Um you mentioned that you turned to comedy basically as almost uh uh I mean this is what lots of people do as a, as a means of distracting yourself from the terrible feelings you were getting probably from a variety of things, but definitely your job from the sound of really it. My job. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it was definitely a situation where, um, obviously I think everybody uses hobbies as a way to displace, um, stress and, you know, focus on something other than your job and other than whatever might be, um, making you unhappy or whatever it may be. Right. But, um, I had been a fan of stand-up since I was really young, since I was like uh, probably like 10 when I first moved back to the United States. Um, there used to be, like if you didn't have cable, do you remember that programming would like end at a certain hour and then they would play uh, like infomercials sometimes? Oh, of and, course, yeah. Yeah, and then sometimes they would play stand-up specials. And then after that, they would do um, the Pledge of Allegiance or whatever the shit. And then it right. would just be static. And so I was like a kid that stayed up really late at night. And I would watch infomercials and I would watch stand-up specials. And um, stand-up is really this way that I got 
to see a window into so many different kinds of people, you know, like um, it was probably the first time I saw like gay people speaking about being gay and making jokes in a way that wasn't, um, I mean, maybe it was self-deprecating, but it wasn't hateful. You Do you know? remember who you saw at that time? Um, Paula Poundstone is what I'm thinking about in this right. moment. Um, even though she didn't directly address too much about her, her sexuality or anything, uh -huh. but even just the way that she presented herself and the topics that she chose to talk about, um, they weren't like motherhood and, you know, previously approved of topics for women. I liked her, too. I yeah. loved her tone. Like, I thought it was just so unique. Yeah. And I, I was pretty transfixed as a child as well with like Paula Poundstone, Emo Phillips. You know? Yeah, exactly. Or like Bernie Mac was amazing to me and, <laughs> and um, Red Fox and Jonathan. Oh, the amazing Jonathan was a great, uh, which is weird because, yeah. you know, he's still around and it's crazy. But uh, <laughs> it, it just was, it wasn't really about any particular comic. And I think uh, sometimes that's what I have not in common with comedy fans is that I didn't ever really become attached to a particular comedian. Good for a booker, though. Yeah, exactly. I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't. Clinical view. Yeah, and and what it really fascinated me was the sheer potential of the variety of points of view that could be found, of the styles that could be found, of the ways that comics could express themselves and talk about things that were funny. I mean, I'm sorry, they were dark and make them funny. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, it really resonated for me and it was partially how I learned to speak English, like to learn um, to use like uh, colloquialisms, <laughs> you know, and mm -hmm. things like that. Um, and I just always followed it and I really liked it. And then when I moved to New York and I did grad, I finished grad school and I was working at the 9-11 museum and I found myself needing um, something to offset the way that I felt at work every day. Um, and also, you know, I had, I had been working full time and going to school full time for probably like a decade. So yeah. the fact that I finished school now left me with this all this free time, basically, you know. Um, and so I just started going to see stand up a lot and all the time. And I did do it in this analytical way, because being an anthropologist does mean that my training um, provided me with frameworks through which I understand the world, regardless of whether it's for fun or for work, you know? Uh-huh. I, I had a thought, too, like, mm -hmm. the um, what you said earlier about doing comedy under a capitalist system. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting to me, because I think some of the strongest comedy um, comes out of maybe uh, entertaining, like, your specific community. So not mm -hmm. so much for the money, but say, like, you know, I would say, obviously, uh, African-American comedy would be like one of the easiest examples of that sure. to use. There's something about Bernie Mac, like uh, his I Ain't Scared of You clip is like maybe my favorite comedy mm -hmm. clip like ever, you know, like yeah. of that of that length. Mm -hmm. yeah, and um, and what's that even about? It's not really about making money. That clip is not. It's, yeah. not even, it's really just about being like, I'm fearless. And maybe there's something where he says, also, I'm hung. You know, so, so, which I always used to think that was no comedian could get by with a I'm hung, like it would make bum out everyone in the audience. <laughs> when I see a comedian pull that off, and I've also seen lots of comedians say that, and everyone's like, 
Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it really goes back to reading the room and what it teaches you, because, you know, what's funny, funny to me is um, something that is cool about black rooms, for example, is what you're talking about of there being like an insular community understanding of like what to us, I guess, seem like inside jokes that we're not a part of, but they all automatically understand with just like the beginning of the, you know, with the setup. Yeah, they start to laugh at the setup before you he the comic gets to the punchline um and so it's clearly a thing that uh works because the comic on stage understands the people who are watching him but also notice that they are turning their reverence on their own community and their own cultural standards and thoughts and i, I think that's like a particular skill right mm -hmm. but then um to use Bill Burr as an example, Bill Burr came up in black rooms and yeah. uh, for whomever may be listening who doesn't know, he is a white man. <laughs> and uh, I think Bill Burr is one of the greats. Froze. And, Can you hear me? Uh, oh, there you go. oh, yeah, I could hear you. Sorry. Could yeah. you hear me? Okay, okay. cool. Uh, yeah, just after you said he's a white man, we lost the sound. <laughs> Oops. Uh, yeah, so he's a white guy, but he... Well, I shouldn't say but. He is a white guy, and he is also one of the greats. <laughs> and he, um, I think he's partially one of the greats because what what the skill he picked up in working in black rooms, being a person who was not of that community, of the in-group, let's say, um, was the ability to learn to read a group that's not his in-group, a group that automatically, upon seeing him on stage, understands that this person is not one of us, right? Mm -hmm. um, and he learned to be funny in front of that, which means learning how to pick up on what people who aren't like you think is funny. Um, and so to me, like a really great one has to have both of those things, both of those abilities to be funny for people who are like you and incisive and kind of ruthless in the way that you deploy comedy against your in-group or not against, but towards and with your in-group, but mm -hmm. also you can't only speak to people who are like you. Right. Yeah. Which is yeah. very, very important, you know, and something that I get annoyed at sometimes with like a lot of the shows I do, mm -hmm. you know, like I love doing shows where it's perfectly suited and it's not about uh, pandering. It's just literally like, OK, it's I, a vibe. Like, yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, you write a special set for that. You know, like that's its own thing. You don't apply. You need to use that where you go. I have to craft it for these guys because I can't just, you know, do some place that what I always do and know they'll like it. You right. know? Um, but yeah, I find that when rooms don't sort of rebook you or you don't ask you, so you have to reach out to them. Uh, you know, I'm old. There's only so much time in the day. <laughs> I mean, I don't use any of that time well, but uh, <laughs> what part of that involves not emailing, you know, uh, the Apollo and saying, yeah. give me a shot. Give me a <laughs> shot, Apollo. Yeah, it's tough. The god Apollo is actually the booker there, right? <laughs> uh, but um, something that was interesting, too, that, that I w wanted to ask you about is, uh, I don't know if it is interesting, was interesting, but it, it's comedians... I love, I have a Pavlovian response to certain comics. Mm -hmm. So, and a lot of the ones I respond to say things, I can't do anything but enjoy generally what he does. You know, um, do I take it in blindly? No. Like, do I like the things that nobody else likes? No. 
<laughs> you know, like I'm irritated by that stuff too. But um, Norm Macdonald, like I can't do anything but be entertained personally by mostly mm-hmm. stuff, even though, you know, uh, all of the Norm Macdonald things that come up. And Bill Burr, you know, you, you clearly are a fan and I am too. And, and he goes hard on, you know, the whole cancel thing. Now he doesn't go, he's right. I mean, he's right to mm. some extent. And I think that exaggerated rightness is funny in in uh a lot of the times with comedians where you're sort of like leaning into your belief so hard that i mean and bill burr specializes in that leaning into a belief so hard that he actually becomes wrong about midway yeah. through like that's kind of what i love about him you know and and if people definitely yeah. well what I, w- I would argue with you that um did you see his last special paper tiger i just started it i was digging it but it yeah. was when it starts hard with that stuff, you know. Right. Well, stick through it because I really think, you know, uh, do you know what a paper tiger means? The words paper tiger or the uh, Yeah, it's like something that is not as dangerous as it seems, basically. Right. You know? Or like a, exa- a f- um, falsely exaggerated threat, right? Yes. P- posed to you or presented to you. And what's interesting is that I think that he paper tigered us. <laughs> by which, yeah, by which I mean he like, and especially the way they packaged um, promoting that special, they specifically clipped out the parts where he was like seeming the most like anti-cancel culture, right? Alt- alty like these kids these days kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then when you watch it, Really, he sets that all up and like argues about it until he argues himself out of it, which is his thing. (laughs) Thing, and then he by the middle now he is actually making like pretty close to feminist points, (laughs) you know, and like yeah, and so. Um, I would say that he is probably smarter than most people think in terms of um cleverly using the rhetoric around him and I would say that maybe that's what comes from having worked in rooms that weren't full of people like him was being able to hear what the dominating the conversation that's dominating the room is and turning it to be what he wants it to be yeah inverting it and you know I actually have interviewed uh Bill Burr in my life uh, Mm -hmm. twice and it once was uh when he was best known for the Opie and Anthony uh, Philadelphia thing, mm-hmm. where he rants on Philadelphia, the second time was on camera, and mm-hmm. both were so fun. But the first one, he was so thoughtful, polite, mm-hmm. uh, and really, really, his his line of thinking really impressed me. So I do know what you're talking about there. And uh, then the second time, he was super like snappy dappy. I'm at just yeah. laughs. Let's talk, you know, like, <laughs> that business, was impressive business too. Bill. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. Yeah. Uh, but to go back to, uh, like your example of norm, right? <laughs> because, um, as comedy fans, as bookers, as comedians, we are all having to consider like, Oh, or am I not supposed to like this person anymore? You know, that kind of thing. And I think, um, it's just part of this exaggerated idea of cancel culture, because if you can, separate yourself from enjoying somebody's art. I don't mean this whole like separate the art from the person thing. I really think that idea is very wrong and not possible. People make their art and their art is made by the person and their experiences and their points of view. Um, But you as the person who consumes it or who appreciates it, because you love something, it doesn't 
reflect on your morality, you know, obviously, unless you love murder or like that kind of thing, but I'm saying everyone loves murder. Right. (laughs) If you love like or you enjoy a a movie or a piece of art, um, to me, I kind of always think of it as like how baseball does the thing where they will like put an asterisk next to somebody's record where they find out that he was using performance enhancing drugs, you know. So Bill Cosby gets an asterisk. Yeah, exactly. Where to me, it is our responsibility to make their legacy be spotty, you know, like not to deny their legacy and pretend that they didn't actually do good comedy or make good films or whatever they, their thing was, but that it isn't, it's not right either that anybody should continue to idolize people who have done bad, questionable things that nobody should be idolizing, you know? Idolatry in general, exactly. uh, in comedy and in, in art is... Is the problem. Yeah, it's, pro- right? it's, pro- it's, it's the problematic thing. It's yeah. truly, let's cancel that because it's just, everyone's a person. I mean, you were talking about that with the Kevin Hart thing on Netflix and all of that stuff. You always hear, oh, they get up at 2 a.m. and then they work until 2 a.m. And it's yeah. like, this is how people die or go crazy or become abusive, you know? Yeah, like, yeah absolutely. It's extremely unhealthy to make us think that our value is in how hard we work ourselves to death um, as opposed to what kind of person we are and what kind of art we make, you know? I do know. So, yeah, I would say, I would just say, uh, yeah, no, we're okay on time. Uh, We could do like five more. Hmm? Um, But so I would just say, as far as like the Norm Macdonald thing, the only responsible thing a fan can do is to like what you like with an asterisk, you know, always acknowledge and try to keep yourself from idolizing the person when you're appreciating the thing that they made. Well, that's, that's you know, the Louis C.K. thing is obviously a major version of that. Because with Dave Chappelle, I mean, I know that we have five, so getting into all yeah. these points is so tough. <laughs> but uh, Sticks and Stones, to me, was a, really similar to the Paper Tiger thing you're talking about. Like, I watched it. My friend said what he thought of it was... You know, someone who had a special, but it just seemed like it was like an off night or something by Dave Chappelle standards. And I was like, "Mm, maybe, I don't know. I mean, he's definitely running, dropping the mic and running away from it more than (laughs) I've seen him in other specials. I agree Um, with your friend, actually. Yeah, (laughs) no, I I get that, you know. But I think if we get into the the schematics of that set, Mm -hmm. it's actually pretty sophisticated where he's, or or not, where he's basically trying to say nothing I'm saying here will actually hurt you. You know, that's right. really what it is. And and the trans stuff act is almost like the centrifugal point, the center point of that, because the whole thing, and it's, it's kind of simple, is like, I'm going to do a trans joke, but then in the middle, I'm going to do a more offensive, in quotation mm-hmm. marks, Asian accent, you know? Right. So now I'm going to get Asian people angry at me in mm-hmm. the middle of making trans people angry. And... Um, it's. I, I think it's a mean of means of rendering it all kind of absurd. For I de- yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. There's there's depth to it. I guess I just don't think that it's the same uh, thing that Burr was doing because Burr uh, started with a similar premise. Both specials uh. start with a similar premise, but Burr talks himself out of it, whereas <laughs> Chappelle doubles down on it. She doubles down, triples down, and uh-huh. then he says the thing about Yang. About, yeah. What would you rather? What did he say? What would you rather? Twelve thousand dollars a year or free healthcare? And it's like, yeah. no, Dave, don't. Don't do <laughs> you're, it. Yeah. You're using your smart simplification powers for the, something. Yeah, for evil. Oh no. <laughs> Absolutely. 
But yeah, with Louis C.K., he's actually got the asterisk. I'm not putting the asterisk next to people yeah. just sort of saying what what he, what Chappelle did there, you know. But but and Louis was one of the most uh, painful ones. And on, on some level, if I hear a set of his and it still has something that's along the lines of his old things, I'll laugh at it. But I don't think I don't I I don't know. My attachment to his comedy is so personal in a sense and you know he was all over like he's just been all over the internet message boards news groups you know since the early 2000s you know being present and improving his work work so he developed this circle of admirers not so much in the idolizing sense but just in terms of like respect respect because he was he 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 was evolving it and i personally saw when the voice kind of flatlined in terms of mm-hmm. evolution but it was so exciting when he was doing that and now to kind of know that other stuff and basically that he was straight up you know couldn't be honest you know yeah. for so long it just it just taints it to on some level and yet people are proudly doing shows with him now uh <laughs> i agree i i agree with you um and then I would add that, you know, I have the layer where I try to be objective, right? I want to be an anthropologist and a booker about it. And I understand why people would still work with him. I understand why people are still booking him. I understand why they shouldn't. (laughs) You know, I get all the sides. Um, But I saw him recently live and... It was not just a matter of like, well, now I'm always going to see you with this asterisk, but it has affected him as a performer, you know, Um, which I guess it shouldn't really come as a surprise to anyone. But in my opinion, um, his, you you know, the way that he even opens up, open, let's just say this, this set, the way he opened up this set um, was sort of timidly not sure of whether or not he was welcome in the room. You understand me? Which is a different way to carry yourself than the way that he used to carry himself into. For sure, yeah. And then the audience, frankly, exploded with happiness to see him. Um, It was a huge theater show, and um, I, I was working. I didn't go to see him, but... I was working on the show and he was added as a surprise. And uh, yeah, so it's a surprise for everyone. But obviously, the the funny thing is that it might be weird for the people working because we are all people in comedy. So we start thinking about like all the should I, shouldn't I, what am I supposed to do here? But the audience was thrilled beyond belief. They exploded upon hearing his name announced. And so they exploded. And even then, he's still kind of like, seemed timid in his start and once he realized that they really like did love him and were going to laugh at anything because there's also that celebrity thing of just people are so happy to see a celebrity that they are more giggly and more willing to go along with whatever this person is talking about on stage but then he sort of did the Chappelle thing of doubling down on these um, questionable subjects that weren't even very funny yeah. in this way where I think like maybe he thinks th- these are the only people who still want to hear from me. So I'm going to give them the kind of humor that they like, which goes completely against the what new I loved about his style. When he, yes, exactly. he was like, if I 
can't get away with this. I mean, and again, when in the context of what yeah. we know now, but if I can't, if they say I can't get away with this, this can't be done in comedy, I will do this subject, you know? Okay. And again, that he did actually a big dick joke yeah. <laughs> that worked once. And I was like, where he's like, it's big, but it's ugly. It's hideous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? And, yeah. and uh, I remember being like, ah, oh, Louie, you, you did it there. And, and, you know, um, so I think that's, that's a loss and 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 it's understandable to take that because you're you're fearful and you have people doing that but uh you know reacting to you angrily in your i don't know comics comic you know yeah Mm -hmm. um i don't hold any real ill will towards them it's just sort of thinking that i do about this stuff and 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 i try to bring that in you know it's it's just i i try not to have venomous feelings about all of these horrible people because <laughs> <I'm evil. laughs> like, allegedly horrible people <laughs> for all i mean yeah. I, I feel like i've done terrible things in my life it's just like you know this is life uh, you know yeah for sure uh, um i just think you know it's too black and white for anybody to think that it's either like we have to ostracize and like forever like destroy anybody who crosses a line but also we shouldn't be just ignoring and forgetting and forgiving we have to learn how to live with people's uh, spotty legacies and the fact that they are layered and nuanced and humor specifically comes from being layered and nuanced yeah and then being simple in its yeah somehow and his to say about the capitalism thing uh remember his entire first set he was trying was him going i lost five million dollars in like a day you know and it's like that's an interesting thing that to come to a crowd with to win them over right you know? unrelatable as hell it's <laughs> <laughs> like okay wow but um, if someone loves them you're like yeah man i need money too yeah, <laughs> like, um, yeah. well i guess we gotta go i don't want to keep you any longer you you talk all the time i'm sure <laughs> but it sounds like you're up to talk about anything at all times yeah Absolutely. At all times, uh, people can definitely hit me up on Twitter to argue about anything they disagreed with. Um, but I got a new cat and my mom and my brother are coming over to meet her. So we're going to have a nice family day before the Super Bowl. What's your cat's name? She doesn't have one yet. Is, what color is your cat? She's all black. Should I have asked that question? Yeah. I okay, mean, good. I don't know. It's it's a little bit discriminatory, but... <laughs> We I love a black cat. They're 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 the coolest. You know, I, I don't know. I really I like her. She was very yeah. nice. She's very much enjoying not being homeless anymore. And her name. Um, I'm thinking. Well, I've got a full list of names. We'll see what the family thinks. Um. Well, I'm. I hope you have fun with your cat. And is there anything you'd like to promote? Would it be the you mad? Why you mad? Why you mad? Yeah, sure. Uh, the podcast is Why You Mad Pod with me and Jake Flores. We talk about comedy stuff and uh, sometimes politics and uh, art history and other things like that. Um, if you're in New York City, I also run a weekly comedy show called Too Many Cooks that is at the stand at 9 p.m. on Thursdays. And you can just follow me at Luisa Diaz Nuts on everything to hear about any of these things that you just missed. <laughs> Diaz Nuts. Yeah, with an E, D-I-E-Z nuts. So Diaz like, nuts. Ugh. nuts. Yeah. Uh, I thought I was being clever, you know? Yeah, me too. <laughs> no, I did think you were being clever. Yeah. I like the name. I like the name. And stick or treat once a year. Once a year, every Halloween. Uh, look for it in a city near you. Thanks so much, Louisa. Thank you for having me, Nick. It was so nice to chat with you.
Yeah, you too. Did you have fun? Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to move to Canada now? I love Canada. I would I would definitely. I want to go to Vancouver and Toronto. I've heard great things. You should come down. You should come down during a, a festival or something. And yeah. Kick it or not. I mean. Yeah, look. no, I'm I'm definitely gonna check it out. It uh, it's been on my list for a minute. And, and we'll I see. How I bad hope you come get here. Too. Yeah, I know. Things might get so bad, they just expel all non-white people. Yeah, exactly. Know? I'm like, I think I will be going to Toronto, knocking on your door, Nick. We've got a lot of resources, yes, and the, the place is big. Uh, I'll ask my mom if uh, you can hang out in the TV room or the basement forever, and uh, we'll be roomies. And tell her I bring a cat. She'll she hate she'll hate that, but I'll. I'll <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks. All right. Have a great Sunday. Thanks again. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. And that, my friends, was my talk with Luisa Diaz. Luisa is uh, around. You can find her at Luisa Diaz Nuts at Instagram and on Twitter. She's branding correctly using the same name on all platforms, something I wish I had thought of. But the Flans on Twitter and Nick Flanagan on Instagram is good enough. But I do have Nick Flan Weekly and Nick Flanagan Weekly uh, for my Twitter and Instagram, respectively. I think that's not bad. Anyway, Louisa, congrats on consistent branding. Uh, listen to her podcast, Why You Mad? And be sure to go to her monthly, sorry, to her weekly show that she produces and books Too Many Cooks. The hosts are so cool. The show is always a great lineup and... Uh, you know what? I hope she'll have me next time I'm in the New York City tri-state area. But that's between she and I. We'll work that out. But if you want to contact her on any of the socials I mentioned before and say how hilarious what I do is and how you as a long, lifelong Manhattanite just are, are craving my comedy at that particular show, I, I won't get mad at you. She might get mad at me that I'm begging for people to contact her. But I won't get mad at you unless she gets mad at me, in which case I will transfer the negativity to you. Folks, more more to come. Thank you for listening to Nick Flanagan Weekly. As I said earlier, patreon.com, ko-fi.com slash Nick Flanagan for both of those really helpful. Otherwise, subscribing, reviewing, rating it online really helps. Share it on Reddit, blah, blah, blah. If there's episodes you like, tell them. Make playlists on SoundCloud with this. I don't want you not to do that. Good day or good afternoon or good night. www.google.com Nick Flanagan Weekly Nick Flanagan Weekly.